Hi, this is Bhaskar Sankara. Um, I'm the founder and editor of Jackman Magazine. I don't often do radio advertisements, but uh, I just wanted to say how happy I was that Dig is a part of the new Jacobin podcast network. You know, we need new critical left-wing analysis and thinking, and Dan Denver and his team is, is needed more than ever. Uh, that's why you should find the Dig at patreon.com and give them a monthly donation. I just gave them $10, and since I'm doing this radio promo for them, I was under absolutely no obligation to do that. Anyway, thanks, and here's Dan. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from AS220 in Providence, Rhode Island. The insistence that Black Lives Matter, at first blush, seems straightforward and minimal. But the movement for Black Lives has transformed Black politics and American politics as a whole. Black Lives Matter is a declaration that is radical in its simplicity, highlighting the value of people that for the entirety of American history— from slavery, convict leasing, and Jim Crow, to the Great Migration, housing and school segregation, and mass incarceration, have been enslaved, tortured, imprisoned, marginalized, and exploited. Barack Obama's election was a symbolic but real victory for many black Americans. But the Obama administration also exposed a huge gap between the hopes and promises he campaigned on and lived realities that continued to be defined by poverty, police abuse, segregation, and incarceration. It was amidst this tension and contradiction that the movement for black lives erupted to make radical demands on the American state and the American people for social and economic justice and for an end to police violence and mass incarceration. It was this very same contradiction between the promise of America and its lived reality that in very different ways also paved the way for Trump's law and order backlash. Today, my guest is Charlene Carruthers, National Director of Black Youth Project 100, and a writer and organizer who lives in Chicago. BYP 100 is a member-based organization of black 18 to 35-year-olds dedicated to creating justice and freedom for all black people. They do this through building a collective focused on transformative leadership development, direct action organizing, advocacy, and education using a black, queer, feminist lens. Hi, very quickly, this is Alex Lewis, the producer of The Dig. A heads up that it sounds a little like Dan is recording from a bunker somewhere during this interview. We swear that he's not in a bunker and apologize about this body's sound quality. The interview is still great, though, so here it is. Charlene, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. What's the genesis of BYP, and how does it fit into the broader picture and history of Black politics, both mainstream and more radical? So BYP 100 is an organization that grew out of both a moment and a requirement uh, for young Black people to take up leadership and also, even more importantly, build a mass base of young people, young Black people specifically, uh, to engage in 
you know, a radical black politics. And how this whole thing got started was in 2012, a group of young black people were in conversation with Dr. Kathy Cohen, who is a professor at the University of Chicago. And there, uh, as a part of a a youth advisory council for the Black Youth Project, which is actually a research project, they said that they wanted to have a national convening of young black activists. And Kathy was the primary person who gathered the resources and helped assemble people to plan out what this convening could be. And so the convening took place in July of 2013. And this happened the weekend of July 12th. And for many people, many of us uh, across this country that weekend, it's synonymous with a uh, essentially a... I always, it's always difficult for me to find the word to describe, but it's a reinforcement, a reinforcement of what type of country we live in. And that Saturday night was the night that we learned the, the non-guilty verdict uh, in the murder of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman. And so we were gathered there right outside of Chicago uh, at the convening and we had to make a decision about how we wanted to move forward. And we made a decision to work with each other and actually build out an organizing space for young black folks who wanted to engage in black politics in a way that was outside of the status quo. And so since then, we've been building what is now a national based building organization. We have eight chapters nationally, um, all led by young black people. And I would have to say that not everyone comes into the organization, you know, far, far left or as radical or revolutionaries. It's something that uh, through engaging in the work that we do, I believe pe- people become more politicized uh, and they become, they, they get clear reads on the situation at that hand and the role that we have to transform it. In terms of that, that status quo, that BYP 100 is responding to and was founded to respond to, Tell me a little bit about um, what what it this what the mainstream politics and mainstream black politics specifically that you guys are responding to, and how you see yourselves historically fitting into the bigger story of of radical black politics in this country. So BYP one hundred, we are an organization full of history nerds, people who specifically nerd out on movement history, on you know our, some of our greatest leaders, people who didn't do so well, great organizations and our various movements, uh, be it from the, the very first moment that an enslaved African was you know, forcibly brought to this land or to this region of the world, like black people have been ga- engaged in resistance and black people have been engaged in rebellion. And so we stand within a long history of that, right? We stand in the, the history of abolitionists uh, as, and today as contemporary abolitionists against uh, punitive systems uh, such as the prison industrial complex, but uh, that, that's inclusive of many, many systems. We also see ourselves in the lineage of organizations, more specifically like SNCC, um, National Black Feminist Organizations and the National Black Feminist Movement, right, be it from the Cumbie River Collective or the National Black Feminist Organization, so we're a collection of peoples that 
I would also include, and many of our folks would include, you know, the people who, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who sparked the Stonewall riots and the modern LGBTQ rights movement in the U.S. as we know it. And so that's that's how, and, and if you look at those movements, if you look at how black people were engaged in these various movements, what you'll, what, what I believe you'll see is that it was always about going in many in many ways going up against this idea that we are inherently human uh, that we're going up against this idea that we're not inherently human and that's the dominant narrative that black people are not fully human and don't be black and queer black and lesbian black and transgender don't be any of that because that's going to be a problem and so black people have had to fight that fight those things within movement and outside of movement so within broader society and within movement. And so that's how we situate ourselves. And not so much as in a reactionary politic, but a politic that is, is visionary, which is what stands within what some would call the black radical tradition. And so we absolutely are within a trajectory and a lineage of black uh, radical politics. And within that tradition, there, there are many contradictions there are many contradictions, and so what we work to do to fill in those cracks of those contradictions that leave people out is we move through what we call the Black queer feminist lens. And Black queer feminism can be most most succinctly uh, summed up by taking up a politic that values identity and a politic that says none of us are going to be free until all of us are free. One that in practice, in practice and in theory is always moving to move the margins into the center. And it shows up through our work and not just in our rhetoric. Tell me a little bit more about why the emphasis on, on the margins, on the queer black women, why strategically and, and theoretically BYP 100 sees that as central to a broader liberation struggle? So for us, uh, the, it's about an approach to our politics. So that includes Black people who are incarcerated, Black people who uh, are cash poor, Black people who are undocumented immigrants. And you, what you'll see are many Black queer women at the forefront of the work that we do. And again, that's to the point that we value identity. We value identity. It means something, lived experiences, are important. And for our, 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 our people who aren't queer or feminist, it's about building a politic that is and being committed to a politic that is. And so even like the approaching, approaching organizing work in a way that is anti-capitalist, in a way that is uh, working actively against misogyny, one that is also willing and open to all expressions of gender and valuing those things. And as importantly, understanding how gender functions in our society as a site of oppression, like those things can show up. So what it does is it, as a lens, right? You put on a pair of glasses, those glasses impact the way you see the world. And so black queer feminism impacts the way that we see the world. And it allows us to get a more complete picture, a more complete story of what's happening to Black people that actually 
then allows us to have more complete solutions as we approach the work of, of transformation and transformative social change. You mentioned that BYP 100 was founded with the goal of building a mass base, and it describes uh, itself as a, the organization describes itself as a democratic member-led one. Tell me about how you go about structuring that and avoid slipping into the typical top-down hierarchical um, patterns that many nonprofits, including those dedicated ostensibly to social justice, mm-hmm. do. So I'll begin by saying that it would be a lie if I told you that there was no hierarchy in our organization. I think there's a difference between hierarchy without accountability and transparency and hierarchy where for, for the sake of certain individuals or small group of individuals make all of the decisions uh, for the work that's done. Where we are as an organization that does have a leadership structure, both locally and nationally, uh, that allows for what we call, uh, what we at least learn from, uh, from Ella Baker is a, a collective or shared model of leadership. We, again, we are an organization with a clear leadership structure, both on the local level and on the national level. And how that shows up is through uh, a way that Ella Baker would organize through group-centered leadership. And so I'm the national director of the organization. I don't make all of the decisions. Uh, Even the decisions that I I make uh, are in conversation with other people. uh, And, you know, I I do make a lot of decisions, and people know the decisions that I make. And that's extremely important in an organization where we're learning how to practice democracy when most of us, if not all of us, have not ever practiced it before. Like, I've never, I don't live, we don't, I don't live in a democratic society. The United States is not a democracy in any way that I imagine democracy, to, that in any way that I imagine democracy should be. And so we're not simply trying to develop a democracy in the sense of how we're sold democracy in this country. It's about having a democratic consensus-driven decision-making process. And the democracy in that, or the democratic process in that, is about people being, us having rigorous discussion, and for the folks who have dissenting opinions, for them to be heard as well. So if, we, if we're taking a vote, say there are 20 people, 16 people say yes, uh, three people say no, and one person abstains, we have to hear from those three people. You know, what... Share more about your no so we know what, what's up, what do we need to adjust, is there anything else to consider? So that even in a vote that, you know, people would call a minority vote, there's importance in that. And we don't just throw it away because majority is supposed to rule. So, you know, that, and that has happened over and over and over in the organization where we have to have a tough discussion and then come to a decision. And that can take a long time. We don't, we've, I found that when we make snap decisions, things don't turn out as well as they do when we actually take the time to process as a group the decision that's ahead of us and the decision that we're making. It's a really interesting point you made about people not having the experience of practicing democracy because we don't live in a democratic society, or at least a lot of people don't. Yet the way that Trump has been described often is as an attack on by by mainstream liberals as an attack on an America that was before he arrived on the scene fundamentally democratic, um, but for many people, um, 
for who are on the economic margins, who are incarcerated, who are uh, subject to police violence. Um, that democracy has always been a bit of a mirage. I am under no illusion that this incoming regime in the White House has has introduced uh, a flawed democratic process. It is something that's you know part of the DNA of this country, and so. Uh, what I believe to ha like what I believe to be at play right now is you know a unique form of American fascism, be it neo-fascism, proto-fascism. I'm not sure how to name it exactly. What I do know is that from the the ways in which the press are spoken about, and even to be clear, like as a, as a person who has been misquoted as a person who is in a movement that has been framed poorly by uh, mainstream media on so many levels, I understand that the media is not a permanent friend of, of our, of, of our movement and surely not of black women who are organizers in this movement. And so I, I I'm, I'm clear about that. And I know that the broader tactic here is to suppress information and to, um, in addition to suppressing information, it's to invalidate like actual things that exist, so facts, and to skew people's minds, and I think even more importantly, to distract folks. Whether it's true or not, the things that are happening to distract people from the other things that are at play. And so this regime is definitely different from previous regimes. I, I won't say, I won't make false equivalencies and say, this regime is just like ones that have come before because we're living in a different moment. And so perhaps at best, this regime is representative and reflective of the many regimes before this. And it is, it's, it's building on those things and bringing some new stuff into play and transforming even what it means, what, what a, an American or U S form, a United States form of fascism can look like. It, that's a, a really important point, I think. From the left, it's a very tough balance to strike um, in terms of emphasizing what's new and dangerous about Trump, um, and on the other hand, not emphasizing the new new dangerousness so much that it distracts from the long-running crisis that's mm -hmm. been impacting so many people mm -hmm. in in the country. So, how, how do you how do you strike that that balance, um, and and not and not fall into a false equivalency? Um, but uh, but also you know emphasize the danger the, the new dangerousness and the and the long running dangers. It's tough to uh, to articulate the structural issues while also identifying uh, the what's happening now and what's new, what's different, what characteristics are different. However, this is something black people have always had to do. This is something that we've always had to do as black organizers. We've always had to think about, at least for folks who are black radicals or revolutionaries, how do you talk about a President Obama and the fact that that administration deported the largest amount of people than any other presidency uh, in, in our history, had a, 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 much, a much higher rate of deportation of undocumented people. And at the same time, no, his relationship and uh, his relationship and the relationship that our communities have to him and his administration and his family by extension. So how do we how do we hold 
all of those contradictions at the same time. It's a difficult task. However, it's something that we've always had to do. What role did the did the promise and then the failures of the Obama administration play in shaping the movement for Black Lives more generally and more specifically BYP 100? Um, was it, did it did it did it sort of erupt in a certain way from from the contradiction, the tension between between the promise and the reality? It's difficult for me to place that squarely with the Obama administration, uh, and knowing that this this movement has its roots or its origins uh, even before, at least in my opinion, even before his presidency. And so I think that what it allowed us to do is have a, a stronger focus on local elected officials and, and governors and our mayors, just our mayors, and while still navigating these structural things. And so for for many people, not all, there was an exposure of the weaknesses of the Obama administration and exposure of what the Obama's Obama administration's priorities were. And I think most importantly, the weaknesses of liberalism. And with, even if people didn't name that, knowing that a police task, the, the, the police task force or the 21st century task force on policing, if I have the name correct, laid out a bunch of liberal reforms that were very much so reformist reforms and not transformative reforms. And for those who many, many people were paying attention to that and knowing that giving more, I think it was maybe after Walter Scott was killed in South Carolina, that people, many more people started to see the flaws in investing in body camera programs uh, in, in our communities as a measure to stop policing and police violence. And so the, I think there were many things that were exposed. However, we many of our folks are still living with the contradiction of like their feelings about the Obama, uh, the Obamas. Period. Their feelings about the Obama administration, and also knowing what the administ like the what the administration was coming into, and that you know that administration was stands in line of you know forty three presidents before him that, you know, their primary goal is to hold up this empire. And Barack Obama did his job. And that, that was a part of his job. And he did it in many ways. And in some ways, uh, that benefited our people in many ways that did it. There's a lot in what you just said, and I have a bunch of follow up questions. I guess my first one is if you could lay out a little bit what what you see as the distinction between a more radical critique of policing and mass incarceration and the liberal critique that you saw coming out of the Obama White House? So a liberal critique of policing in America or an approach to what can be done with them tells us that what we need, that that there there are some structural issues and racism is one of them and that we can train the racism out. We can monitor the racism out. We can uh, fund more surveillance of the people who are surveillors out. And in doing those things, oh, and, and even one of the one of my favorites, and I say that sarcastically, one of my favorites is increasing trust between the police and the community. And so those are very liberal ideas because they they're founded on this i this 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 notion 
that policing actually does keep us safe. And so where we approach the issue of policing is saying that actually police don't keep us safe. And we have to create a society that gets us to a place where policing doesn't even exist anymore. Not community policing, not policing sanctioned by the state, not vigilanteism, but actually community-based systems that are grounded in practices outside of punishment, but ones that actually deal with the conflict and harm, and not ones that simply take individuals out of communities and don't actually deal with what what happened. And even what what policing, we think about the basic things. I was at the Chicago Police Headquarters a couple weeks ago because I need to get a crash report for a, a car accident I got into. I don't understand why I have to go to the police department for that. Why don't we have another body that's responsible for that? Why is it that when someone's in a domestic violence uh, situation or intimate partner violence situation, that the, only, the main people they have to call are the police? That doesn't make sense to me. It makes no sense to me. There should be a community-based response because police are not generally trained to actually respond well. And as someone who's a trained social worker as myself, they're not trained well to respond to those, uh, to those situations. And what happens after they respond? We don't know. It varies from place to place. And so I'm much more interested in how, and, and, and the last thing I'll add is that we give too much money to the police. They get too much money. And so in Chicago, for example, the police, the, the Chicago Police Department receives nearly 40% of the public service budget. That amounts to about $4 million a day. That money should be spent elsewhere, given that we're closing public schools left and right, given that, you know, the, the inter-community violence or the inter, in, in, interpersonal violence that happens within our communities continues uh, largely unchecked by any real response that's going to change things structurally, uh, by the, that, any response led by the government, uh, particularly our, uh, our mayor and our city council. Um, we could, th- that money could be much better spent in funding our public schools, creating jobs, because our people need jobs, uh, actually funding mental health care services. You know, those are the things that when we talk about invest and divest, that's what we mean. And that is not a liberal stance. That's for sure. Um, in terms of the, the violence in the community between civilians, um, the, that's gotten a lot of attention uh, nationally in terms of the number of, of young people who are, are being shot and killed um, by other young people in Chicago. The police and law enforcement community have a, um, a program to deal with that that has obviously failed to, to provide real solutions or prevent gun violence. What's BYP 100's vision of, of how to, to, to stop the violence before it, before it starts? Well, our vision is very much so tied up in investing in our communities. And it also looks like how do we uh, take up work and root ourselves in local communities and in in place and also create space uh, within a broader context that allows us to model the type of society that we want to live in. Because like truth be told, many of us have not ever seen what it looks like to be free or what it looks like to create self-sustaining communities. Black people have done it before. 
it's not something that's completely foreign to um, to our to our histories and to our people. As an organization, we're diving into what that looks like. How do we do it in a way that's principled? Uh, how do we do it in a way that isn't just uh, simply more reformative forms? And so, I was our entry point into that has been our invest divest work. And we, you know, we're we're about a four year old organization, so we're still pretty pretty young. And we we while that's our entry point, we don't see that as our final destination. Uh, continuing to engage with the state to divest from the things that they do. We also want to put just as much energy, more energy into creating those alternatives ourselves. So that's, that's where we're headed. It seems like on, on one level you have invest divest, which is about the state um, taking money that it's spending on policing and punishment and investing it in, in people's economic well-being and education. Um, I also wonder whether you see black organizing as playing a role in mediating the interpersonal disputes within the community that fuel a lot of gun violence? Yeah, so we're, again, the modeling piece is really important. So we're learning some of that stuff within our organization right now. We we have our own self-governing structure for how we deal with conflict and harm that happens within the organization. And we don't call the police. It's not what we do. And we lean not just into people who are members, but also people who are in our community um, to deal with things that happen. And so our hope is that one day that will leave, or that our plan rather, our plan is that that will leave the organization and we can, from the things that we've learned, they can also be used within broader community settings. So we're still, we're still in the, 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 the lab figuring it out because we too, like we, we, we come from community. We are within community and we are, we're creating community with each other. And so we have to figure a lot of stuff out because there's nobody gave us a book on how to deal with these, these issues outside of the state. Uh, we have to piece together things that have been done before and think about the things that we need to do differently moving forward. We'll be back with more of this interview in a moment. But first, I want to thank you for listening. And I also want to ask you for money. We are getting so much great feedback on this show, and our audience is growing fast. Please find us on Patreon.com to support us financially. Even a few bucks a month is extraordinarily helpful. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And just search for The Dig, and it will explain how you can support us. Thanks. In, in recent years in Chicago, obviously, there's been a lot of protest, a lot of turmoil, and a bit of political change as well, though Rahm Emanuel survived a tough re-election fight against a, a left challenger, um, Chuy Garcia. Um, State's attorney Anita Alvarez was voted out of office. Um, the police department will be subject to a new oversight board, and the Justice Department is now involved. What sort of impact do you think these changes and reforms will have, and what do you see as their limitations, potentially? Well, I see some of the reforms uh, moving in a direction that they need to. However, simply knowing a problem exists, recognizing that the problem exists, and not actually doing something to change it structurally, those are two, that, that, those are two different dynamics. Like, 
in in any recovery process, like you have to, one of the, the important steps is to recognize that you actually have a problem. So after you recognize that you have a problem, you have to actually go on a journey and recognize that the, the whole way in which you're doing things is not the way that you're going to be able to do things moving forward if you want things to change. And so I'm not convinced that those who hold political power in this, in this city are working with that in mind. I feel like they're trying to do crisis management. Uh, they're trying to hold on to their, their, their positions and do just enough just enough so that the city won't ignite the way it did in 2005-15 again. And, you know, even if it doesn't ignite the way, the same way it did in 2015, they should know that our work isn't done. We're not done. We're building. And we're focused. We're continuing to, like, focus on our people. And that, that, that work is beyond any reform it's beyond any one one single policy uh, that they could possibly pass and what's really important right now is that they do everything within their power to not further or to replicate the law and order imperatives that the white house has had in mind and put in place since the very beginning so more specifically, I want to follow up about Anita Alvarez and Kim Fox. Anita Alvarez um, obviously developed a uh, well-deserved reputation for being a very uh, reactionary law and order top prosecutor in Cook County and different uh, mostly to police misconduct and abuses. Um, Kim Fox took her on and won. Do you see that as, as, as a step forward? Well... Kim Fox uh, also just decided not to indict the police officer who killed Betty Jones and her, I believe her grandson, Quintonio Green. And uh, so I, it's, 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 it's a difficult thing to, to reconcile with knowing that I don't believe that simply imprisoning police officers is the solution to end police policing or police violence. I don't believe that. And I know that there are no other measures in place, no other real measures in place to hold uh, police officers who kill people accountable. And so her job is to actually hold, like is an accountability measure for police, for policing in, in, in this city, um, particularly when police officers kill people. And she's not doing that job. And so I, and, 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 you know, it's really early, so we'll see what else she does. Uh, we, as an organization, did not endorse Kim Fox. We don't, we don't, we, we did not endorse Kim Fox because her job is inherently oppositional to the work that we do. What we were clear about is that Anita Alvarez shouldn't have been in that position given the amount of power that it has over our lives. And so that's why, like, we entered the fight in addition to her fumbles and her poor decisions around the killing of Rakia Boyd and also Laquan McDonald, we know that that position holds so much power over our lives and that we have the responsibility to weigh in on what should happen. And we knew that she shouldn't be in that position. And so, as we said, after Kim Fox won the election, if Kim Fox doesn't do what she should do and what she's promised to do and what we, what 
she, what we believe she should do, then she will be unseated as well. And that's like, that's the power that we have. It's one of the, the, the types of power that we have uh, to one. And it's, it's not a structural thing. That's one of the, the, the potentials of the power that we have. Um, one last question about Chicago uh, before I, I zoom back we, out to national issues. Um, Rahm Emanuel has been in a long-running war with uh, militant-led Chicago Teachers Union, the CTU. Um, he's closed a lot of schools. Um, he's been fighting with, uh, with, with parent and student, uh, organized parent and student communities. Where does public education fit into what BYP 100's, uh, uh, in, into BYP 100's agenda? Well, for us, we, of, of course, within our Invest Divest work, we believe that public schools, quality public schools, should be prioritized, that we should actually invest so that all of our, all of our children can receive a quality public school education. And uh, the other way that we look at it is that, especially in this moment where lots of people are talking about sanctuaries and safety, is that our public schools are not sanctuary for any in, uh, for our students. They're surely not sanctuary for uh, students who are undocumented, they're, and they're not uh, sanctuaries. They're not sanctuaries for students who uh, come from Black and Brown communities, whether they're undocumented or not. And so. Uh, we have been calling for and will continue to call for police to be taken out of schools and for the money that's spent on police in schools to be invested in the schools themselves for sort of justice programs, counselors, libraries, art programs, things that actually further um, our young people's education in a holistic and healthy way. And what about the privatization of, of public education? A lot of pro uh, of school reformers, people who advocate what they call school choice, um, they like to frame it as a, as a civil rights measure about giving um, poor black youth an opportunity that, that failing public schools aren't giving them. How does, how does BYP 100 uh, approach um, the, the fight over the future of public education, which has been uh, raging hotter in Chicago perhaps than almost anywhere else in the country? You know, as an organization, I wouldn't say that we've, uh, and we have members for sure, who are members of the Chicago Teachers Union, who are teachers in other places and school professionals. Um, but we are, what I, what I will say is that we, well, let me base back up. I'll start that over again. So as an organization, we're very clear that public schools have to be invested in and that the goods that should be for like the commons, public goods, including education and services, public goods and public services, um, including education, should be afforded to all of our children, especially our children who come from communities that have been divested from for decades. And so there is not, what we don't, what we don't position ourselves to do is to support the privatization of our schools by the state or corporations. And I say that to be very clear that there are some people, there are some black folks, brown folks, some people who start independent schools. Those are not the same as corporate, corporate backed or state um, backed uh, private schools. And so we should be able to hold space for communities that want to take leadership over their education. That is a much different matter from money, moneyed interests 
uh, moneyed interest within our communities um, who privatize schools. Unfortunately, I want to uh, ask, uh, return to some questions about Donald Trump. To what degree do you think that Trump's election represents a backlash, a law and order backlash against your movement? I would say that his administration and his supporters, even more importantly, his supporters are a backlash to the gains and the power that we are in the pot that we built within our movement. And he was going to, I think he was going to go whichever the way, whichever way the wind blew. It was his supporters that reacted to his rhetoric of law and order, his rhetoric of othering people, his rhetoric of, he used very populist language. He had a very, a a populist message that resonated with people who were afraid of losing either the perceived or actual power that they held. Because it wasn't just, you know, poor, so-called poor working class white people who voted for him. And those people are afraid that white supremacy was losing its, its grounding, its power, and they want to hold on to it. I don't think these are just a bunch of people who were disenchanted with the Democratic Party for being disenchanted, like just on that one thing. But they want to hold on to a particular type of country that they felt was disappearing. And in many ways, that type of country was being challenged and intentionally we're working to dismantle it uh, by young black people. And that likely scared, it, it, it scares them. And as a result, this law and order rhetoric, which is really law and order of black and brown people, keeping black and brown people in control, it resonates with people. And they turned out and they voted for him as a result. What's the relationship, as you see it, between the movement for black lives and multiracial movements for social and economic transformation? Is is the movement part of a broader struggle for socialism, or is that still an unanswered question within within the movement? I think that the broader movement for black lives is a movement that is at minimum challenging capitalism. There are organizations and in, in, in areas of the movement for black lives that are clearly anti-capitalist, clearly socialist, even some that are clearly communist. And we know as, as black people who are engaged in, in organizing that the system as is, capitalism as is, and, and capitalism as it could ever be, because it won't, it, it, capitalism will not save us as a people, especially as a people who have been capital, who have literally, physically, materially been capital, and have helped build this, this, this entire, uh, the, the entire economy off of our labor and li- quite literally off of, our, off of our bodies and our ability to reproduce more laborers um, through the system of chattel slavery. And so uh, it's within that that I believe that, we, that that's a running current, even if people don't identify themselves as socialists, it's, it is uh, a running current against capitalism, um, a critique of capitalism, and one that is saying that something else has to be done differently, even if that something else isn't uniformly believed or held. And, and how do you see that movement, um, its relationship to uh movements that are either outside 
the black community or that are multiracial? So BYP 100, we have been engaged in work with multiracial, in a multiracial formation and to explore what are things that as faith-building organizations who engage in direct action nationally, but also on a hyper-local level, that we can do together. As we recognize that if we're going to bring down the prison industrial complex, if we are going to, even in this moment, if we're going to keep our people safe who are undocumented, people who are cash poor, people who are transgender, uh, anywhere else in the LGBTQ community, women, and people who are incarcerated, if we're going to improve our material conditions uh, and, and, and protect ourselves in this particular moment and in whatever way possible, is that we have to do it together. We have to do it together. And so it's, it's really important for us to build deeper relationships across movements and um, connect our, not just to connect our issues, and even more importantly, how do we advance together around these, these, these questions and these issues of safety for our people, while recognizing that anti-Blackness uh, has shown up and lived in so many multiracial movements and multiracial spaces, and that we actually have to seize the opportunity in a way that confronts anti-Blackness tackles it and dismantles it within our movement. So it's necessary. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's important work that we've, we've prioritized uh, and uh, we're committed to doing. Republicans have appealed to, and Trump in particular, have appealed to many whites by painting black people and the movement for black lives as an enemy. But for many poor white people who aren't part of the country's economic elite, um, they too are caught up in systems of over-policing and mass incarceration. How, how should we talk to those white people about their stake in ending mass incarceration? What sort of message do you think can turn them, potentially convince them from, from seeing uh, the system as one that they have an interest in ending for their own for their own sakes, not just out of some sense of charity um, uh, or allyship with the black community. Well, that's a tough question because much of the prison industrial complex is also hinged on the economic gains that poor white communities can have from that system. And so, I think one of the things that has to be done is that for uh, this country to actually invest in, um, you know, alternative economies, which is different economies that don't rely on punishing our people. And that folks have to see that. Like, people are wrestling right now in coal country about whether or not this industry that doesn't, that, that actually co contributes to climate change um, and it contributes to putting food on people's plates, is that, like, white folks are in a, a crisis around that about the future, of, uh, uh, the future of that industry. And so I feel like they have a lot of questions to answer. And it's like our economy has a lot of, of changes that it has to undergo. And that's all connected. When people's livelihoods are tied to extractive economies, such as the prison industrial complex, like the, the entire prison system and policing, and the extractive economies of the, the, the coal industry, 
our society has to respond with things that are actually regenerative. And that work isn't necessary. It's not the only site for black organizers to engage with, with white people around. And it's not simply something that white people who are just anti-racist need to engage around. The conversation has to be much broader to look at our economy and the state of it and actually saying, hey, these economies that y'all are engaging in right now are extractive. And if we're going to be, if we're going to live on a planet where we can breathe, we got to do something differently. And the things that are stopping us from breathing, literally, quite, quite literally, from the killing, the strangling of Eric Garner in New York City to uh, poisonous atmosphere, asthma, various complications that our people have, we got to do something different. Like these things are stopping our people from breathing and they're all connected. They are extractive economies and we have to build regenerative ones. So that's a message that can be held by many people. Uh, and one, when we talk about white folks in particular, it is absolutely a message that white people need to carry to white people. And it can't just be one of climate change that is absent of an analysis of anti-blackness or white supremacy. It has to be an analysis that understands how, um, how, how those things interact and how they impact the climate itself and our economy and our world at large. There's a lot of debate on the leftover quote unquote identity politics. And it's often, I think, not a very helpful debate in that it pits the struggles of people of color, queer people, women against class struggle. Um, how do you see the question and the debate more generally? Whenever someone mentions identity politics, the first people I think of are the Cumbie River Collective, and which in about around 1976-ish, they released the Cumbie River Collective Statement. And in that, they talked about the role of identity politics in black feminism. You know, this is a collective of black, black women, including black lesbians and black women who weren't lesbians, um, who came, who were part of the black feminist movement and how they named the importance of identity and how people organize and how people gather to me is extremely important. And while we may start with a shared identity, our organizations and our movement, they more often than not, they grow, they grow find more ways to connect with each other and uh, get more more clear about the values and the things that they want to fight for together. And it's within that that I believe like this this focus on this focus on uh, our shared our shared experiences, this uh, and our shared values. Those are that's the way I was taught to initially organize is around actually around shared values. And then in black organizing is where I learned the importance of shared experience, shared narrative, shared culture, and being able to organize people around the things that impact our lives. And I don't just organize with somebody because they're black. I organize with people within my organization because we're an organization of young black activists is because we have a shared politic. We have, um, we have places where we meet with shared vision for our liberation as black people. And many people do that. White people do it. White progressives do it. 
um, what people would say workers, workers do it. There are various types of ways that identity show up, show up. However, it seems to be a problem when it's done by black folks, by um, LGBTQ folks, by black and brown women. It becomes a problem then. But I, I remember, I remember uh, when I was a college student, um, and I, this was before I heard about the book, Beverly Tatum's book, Why, the Bla- Why Are All the Black Kids you know, Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? I, I, this is before I heard about the book, because unfortunately I haven't read it yet. And we would go into our lunchroom, uh, the, or the cafeteria, rather, the dining hall. And there was this long table, like, right in the front. And all the black, not all, a lot of the black students would sit there. And we would get questions, why are, why are y'all all sitting together? And I would then ask, well, all the football players are sitting together. All the basketball players are sitting together. Is anyone questioning them? No. But I think there's something very particular when black people decide to do something collectively that grinds the gears of people in this country. Uh, it's something that unsettles them. And perhaps it's because it, it takes people back to the, the places of, of, of other acts of, of, of collectivity by black people, such as slave rebellions, revolts, uh, and other uprisings, and even more contemporarily, the Ferguson uprising, the Baltimore, Charlotte uprisings, all of those things. People don't like it when black people resist together uh, because it, it threatens their, their, their own location in the world. And they shouldn't feel that way because black people being together isn't antithetical to anybody else's liberation. If anything else, it allows us to have a fuller expression of liberation and freedom in this country where so many of us don't have it. And it seems like also, uh, like what you're saying is having those spaces is not antithetical to also having multiracial spaces like, say, in a labor union. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely not. Uh, it, these, these things are necessary. These things are necessary, especially if we just look at the history of labor in this country. I mean, my goodness. If you look around your labor union and all the people in leadership or many of the people in real leadership are white and white men, that's a problem. That's a huge problem because this country, yes, obviously white people have contributed to building this country. And many of those same white people weren't considered white when they first came here, uh, be it Italians or Irish people. And so this, this place is just full of contradictions around who's in and who's out. And, uh, you know, those who often decide who's in and who's out, black folks, <laughs> we've always, <laughs> we are generally always left out. <laughs> and we, we will ne- we've never been included in whiteness, and I don't, I'm not interested in being included in it, and I don't anticipate that that'll change ever in this country. Yeah, it seems like if, 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 if whiteness is premised on anything, it's on... Uh... It's a, it's a, whiteness is a, is a protean and flexible thing, but if it's, if it's about anything, it's about not black. Exactly. What do you see as the potential role of electoral politics? Um, to the extent that the movement for black lives is an anti-capitalist movement, then it has to have its sights set on taking state power. How, how does that happen? Um, how do you see various, uh, ideas that are floating around Currently, um, last year, the Bernie Sanders campaign was criticized uh, quite a bit for its failure to win over black voters, though it did win over far more black youth than it was widely 
um, than was widely credited. Is there a, how, how do you see left electoral politics moving forward and the movement for black lives role within that? As we look through to the next four years, what I'm certain about is that there must be some level of disruption within um, political parties. And that includes the Democratic Party. Uh, that includes, I mean, that <laughs> I'm really interested to see the level of disruption that will happen in the Republican Party within the next four years as well. And so within that, like as, as black people and as, 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 as a movement, we can't simply say don't vote um, because the entire system is corrupt. I don't believe that's responsible. What I believe is necessary is that the Democratic Party, which is so confident that it has the faith of black people, that they have to be, that, that there's a level of disruption that's required for them. And that uh, for those who are interested within the broader movement, for they themselves to run for political office on the values and the issues that we've laid out as, as, a, as a broader movement for black lives through the vision for black lives. I think that there's, for people who are interested in that, um, as an organization, you know, we don't run candidates. And so I'm, you know, Speaking, definitely speaking more broadly about about the movement and what's possible. Uh, what I also believe is that many uh, black folks are going to be looking for what's next. Folks were, if they voted for, many people voted for Hillary Clinton um, because they were clear that you know Donald Trump wasn't it. Uh, uh, they were clear that whoever else wasn't it. And some black people voted for Hillary Clinton because they believed in her. I'm sure there's all types of folks who should have voted uh, for Hillary Clinton. What's really important for us as a movement is that, hey, y'all, it is not just about the presidential election. It can't be. It can't be just about who's at the top of the ticket. Because the real havoc that is wreaking on our lives every single day, there's so much ha power that's held with our mayors, our governors, and our state legislatures. And so the movement is in a position to uh, actually engage our people in electoral politics that are much more localized. And that, that, to, me, that to me is where much of our power will lie and our potential uh, to impact electoral politics will lie. You know, the, 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 the Democrats and Republicans will duke it out on the national level for sure. Uh, um, I'm sure they'll do all of that. And we also have a job to make sure that our people are informed about what's happening locally and, and statewide. And if we don't do that, we've done our people a disservice. Because that's, a, that's an important point. After all, it's local police and local prosecutors, which okay. are the entry point for mass incarceration, not the federal government by and large. Yeah, it's. You know, obviously, right now, the, the president has the ability to write an executive order and kickstart uh, or just ramp up raids, deportation raids, um, and other immigration-related enforcement that keep people out of the country or kick people out of this country. And so that's real. That's a, that's a lot of power. And all of those things are enforced locally. And so how is it, do we 
go beyond our mayor, such as Mayor Rahm Emanuel, declaring that Chicago or New York City or San Francisco or any number of cities are sanctuary cities when we know that undocumented immigrants are not safe in, in these cities. And we know that they are not sanctuaries for uh, the, like, for the, the all oppressed and marginalized people. And so this is a fallacy. Sanctuary isn't, cannot simply live within the realm of, of federal policy uh, and cannot live within the realm of how ICE interacts or doesn't interact with local law enforcement agents. How do we actually create welcoming, freedom-liberated uh, cities uh, for, for all of our people? That's the question that's at hand. And electoral politics have a role to play in that. However, that won't happen if we're not engaged in, uh, in engaging with our people to scale. And that's the potential of the, or the, what we, the imperative for the next four years. Charlene, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Liza Yeager, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, where you can subscribe, and where you can also leave us a glowing, eloquent review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, and so does telling all of your friends and family. We really appreciate all propaganda on our behalf. And please also find us on Patreon.com and support us with a monthly payment. Even a few bucks helps. Next week, we'll be talking to Corey Robin about a whole lot of things.